Hi, Tom. Thanks for being here today. We're going to answer a few questions that we get through emails, YouTube questions, um, MBT forum questions. Um, it's going to be kind of a grab bag of, of questions to answer. So let's get started um, on one that came in from an email from Monica. Tom has mentioned that it's profitable for the LCS that we return to a new experience packet in quite a short time, often within days. But do we then stay in the womb for nine months just waiting? Does that seem profitable? What a slow start to an adventure. At what time does the IUOC and Free Will Awareness Unit enter the unborn fetus? There's no fixed answer to that. It depends. Uh, it's not like at some particular time a gong rings, you know, and then that's that's the time. You know, it's not like that at all. It depends on the entity. Basically, an entity will begin experiencing, in other words, get the data stream from the larger conscious system that describes the experience of that fetus once that fetus has developed enough to have interesting experience. Okay, so it depends on the individual. Each individual may you know, have different requirements. If you were, let's say this was your first trip in, you may want to start very early because you'd see, you'd hear sounds, you know, after a certain period, not immediately, obviously, after conception, there wouldn't be any experience. But eventually, as that fetus develops, there would be sight. It might just be light, you know, things that are lighter and darker, you know, shading. There might be sensory data, you feel and you touch when you push against the inside of the, of the uterus. It could be hearing the voices of uh, the dog barking, you know, your dog or the dog next door or, you know, a fire engine going by with a siren. I mean, there are sounds and you would hear those sounds in utero. Your parents talking, your family, your brothers and sisters. So there would be a certain amount of sensory data that would be available to a fetus. And for a first timer, they probably wouldn't want to miss any of it. They'd like to kind of have you know, all that sensory data. On the other hand, to somebody who'd been around a long time, that sensory data just might not be that interesting. And they may decide to skip all that before they log on and start getting the data from the, you know, the rendering engine that describes the physical sense data of that fetus. So they may want to wait. I mean, it could be that it doesn't even have to be before birth. You know, it could start after birth. Entity may log on. So, you know, there's no, you know, I can't make up a rule that says it always happens at this time, or it always happens before birth, or it always happens within six months of after birth, or within six years of after birth. I mean, you can make all these things up, but for the most part, it's going to have to do with the individual free will awareness unit that is logging on to that particular data stream and where in that data stream do they want to start their experience that will then define that lifetime. So there's no set point at which that happens. All right. Thank you. 
The second question is, Tom has also said that the LCS doesn't profit from having more physical matter realities than necessary. It takes a lot of programming. But why is our PMR so big? It's a planet in the star system in a galaxy among billions of other galaxies. That is a lot of programming. Well, it would sound like there's a lot of programming involved there, but actually there may not be so much. You see, in a virtual reality, you only compute the things that people measure, that people see. The virtual reality exists only in the minds of the players. So the computer that renders that virtual reality is sending data to the players. In this case, free will awareness units, or if you like, individuated units of consciousness. So all of those planets and all of those suns and all of those, those things out there by the trillions and trillions and trillions are never computed unless there is some player who's interacting with them in some way. So not so much programming as you might think. Okay, that's called uh, procedural programming. We, we do something similar like that. And you can look up No Man's Sky, if you'd like, which is a virtual reality. And they do the same thing. They have a quintillion number of, of worlds, which sounds like a lot of programming. But it isn't really. It can be done on a rather small machine as, as uh, big computers go because everything is done on the fly and all the information that is generated is only to a request for information from a player, you see. So it's not such a big thing and it's not such a big waste of uh, resources. So that's kind of the first point there. It's, it's, uh, it's not that we're just this one little world among you know, trillions and billions and that why would it produce all of those trillions and billions if it, you know, only needed just us? Well, it's not really producing trillions of billions. When we look out into the universe with a telescope, we see lots of those stars. We don't see the planets around them because planets don't put out enough light. They reflect light, but they don't generate light like stars do. So we see the stars and we know there's trillions of stars and stars have a large amount of gravity. Generally, they're fairly big things compared to planets and asteroids. So they could capture other chunks of mass. You know, that's the, the rule set. Gravity is part of the rule set. But just because we see that means that the, that the computer is giving us those little points of light, is showing us that picture when we take our camera and take a picture of what we see through the telescope. And then when we turn that telescope off, it stops rendering any of it because nobody's looking at it anymore. You can't see it with the naked eye, so it doesn't have to render it to people looking up at a night sky, it doesn't have to render it to people where it's daytime, and it doesn't even have to render it to anybody with a telescope except one that's as strong or much stronger than that telescope, see? And only when it's being looked at. So it's not uh, like we just have this one little tiny thing with all of that massive programming and it just doesn't make sense. What a waste of time and energy. Not that way at all. 
it may be that we are it. There's nothing else out there in this big universe other than empty space and planets and suns and all the rest of that stuff. But there may not be any more, you know, what, uh, conscious critters wandering about, you know, as subsets of, of uh, the larger conscious system. There may not be any other IUSs. They may all just be here. And then the question is, well, is seven and a half billion enough? You know, or would 10 billion even be better? Would the consciousness uh, evolve more quickly if there were 10 billion instead of seven and a half billion or 20 billion? That's where you get to the point of diminishing returns, which on all uh, systems, you have a point of diminishing returns. If you put more resources, resources, well, let me put it this way, if you put more people on the ground, each one requires a data stream. That data stream has to be computed. So there's an overhead. So you have the benefit, which is the benefit of faster conscious evolution because of the virtual reality. And you have the cost, the cost of having to feed each individual a data stream and keep all their interactions straight to boot. So when the benefit gets smaller than the cost, then the system would stop adding new seats to that VR trainer. As long as the uh, benefits outweigh the costs, then more and more come on in. You know, we, we could use more people because we get more benefit. So that's the, that's the analysis that really needs to be done. Well, I know I understand your example of we, we could be all there is, but I know you've visited a lot of other uh, physical matter realities, and, and does it work that way there too? Yes, of course. The reason that there are likely these other physical realities, and I've been to many of them, but the reason that, that they make sense is that you wouldn't expect the larger conscious system to put all its eggs in just one basket. Oh, that's the human basket you know, on earth, and they will evolve or de-evolve, and that's it. Don't have any, don't have any of the games going. That's not very good science. You know, if you want to understand how to optimize consciousness evolution, then you're going to put multiple groups out there. And you're going to make each one of them a little different. You're going to give each one of them, you know, a little different initial conditions and maybe a little different rule sets. You're going to try different things, different situations, place where the living is easy, maybe places where the living is hard, all kinds of things to stimulate the individuals there and their, their uh, choices and to see which is better. Because if one is much more productive than the other, well, then it gradually you'd shut down the ones that were unproductive and have more of the ones that were more productive again, till you reach that sweet spot where the cost and the benefit are about equal. So the system would definitely want to develop more than just one model, one, you know, instance of a virtual reality in which consciousness could evolve. So there are others, but there's a limit. It's not like there's infinite numbers or even, you know, millions of these different realities. There's enough to cover all the bets that the system might have on 
what might be more or less successful. And then it kind of lets it alone and see what happens. And part of this is how you describe our reality as having boundaries and finite. Well, yes. Anything real has to be finite. Infinity is a concept, not a real thing. No thing can be infinite. Okay. That's just a logical consequence, the definition of infinity. Uh, nothing real can be infinite. So if it's not infinite, then it has a boundary of some sort. It's bounded. In other words, the larger conscious system only will have so many bits to work with. Now, it may improve its computer science to put more information in a bit or define its bits in different ways. It may you know, do all sorts of clever things to make its computer power seem like it's more, but it, it's still basically limited limited. It will never go to infinity. So if the if consciousness is an information system, that information system has to have limits. There's limits on speed of computation, speed of the flow of information. There's limits on memory, processing, storage, all the things that our computers have limits on, you know, our information systems have limits on. So will the consciousness also put the limit of our, on our conscious systems are so large, are so, you know, so big that to us, they appear to be infinite. So we look at them and from our tiny little experience, like a little bacterium, you know, somewhere on this big complex human, you know, from our little tiny bacterium's experience, it certainly seems infinite, but we know that it, logically, Nothing real can be infinite, and consciousness is real. Well, thank you. That was interesting. Another question is, what does the rest of my individuated unit of consciousness, now we, you use metaphors that we are part of the larger consciousness system. There's a individuated unit of consciousness, and there's a free will awareness unit that separates itself from that for experiences here. So what does the rest of my individuated unit of consciousness do after it uh, skips a part of itself as a free will awareness unit and sends it to go to grow and to experience here? Okay. Well, I haven't defined that on purpose. Here's the way the model was made. It was made with metaphors. And each metaphor stands for a function of consciousness that is logically necessary for the overall consciousness model to work. Okay, so one thing that's necessary, obviously, is a source. So we start with this tiny little uh, minimalistic piece of consciousness that can only determine it's either this way or that way. Okay, so we start with that and we let that evolve up into what we call the larger consciousness system. And a lot of that's described in my, in my book and, and uh, mostly I think in book one. We also have a function of consciousness 
that there are individuals, many individuals, not just one monolithic thing. So uh, we have another metaphor, which is an individuated unit of consciousness, a piece of that larger consciousness system. And there's logic that demands, why did it need to break into pieces? You know, that has to be a good, sound, logical, deductive answer. And what is the purpose and point of these pieces? And how does that work? So, you know, the model does all that. So now you have a individuated units of consciousness. That's a piece of consciousness. Now, that consciousness piece is not evolving very quickly because all it's doing is sharing information with other individuated units of piece of consciousness and with the system. So this virtual reality idea then is, is produced to create context in which the consciousness has to make more meaningful choices, choices with consequences, ethical choices, which don't really come up a whole lot just chatting with people in the big chat room. So at that point, you need a piece of that individual unit of consciousness to log on to that virtual reality data stream, just like you would log on to your elf or log on to a Sims character. You just log on to it. And after that, that data stream would define all of the sensory data collected by that avatar. Okay, so you need the free will awareness unit because that's really a different function than the individuated unit of consciousness. The individuated unit of consciousness was required because the system had to go from a monolithic system to a, a system of much more potential, which is a system of a large number of entities all with free will interacting with each other. Huge increase in potential. But then you only needed a piece of that individual unit of consciousness to log on to that virtual reality entropy reduction trainer. So each time I had a function of consciousness that I was aware of from my own explorations of consciousness, then I have to come up with a piece in the model. Now, once you have the, the entropy reduction trainer, and what you have to do there is grow up. In other words, become different, become love, you know, reduce your entropy. Then obviously that won't happen quickly. That's not an easy thing to do to change who you are. So it's going to take multiple tries, multiple experiences. So there comes experience packets or reincarnation is a logical requirement of the model, you see, and so on it goes. So all of these things are pieces that are a little different than the piece before. You know, the IUOC is not just the same as the larger system. The free will awareness unit is not just the same as the IUOC. But I didn't really define what does the IUOC do all day at work while its free will awareness unit is off experiencing some avatar? Well, you can come up with things. You can say, oh, that IUOC, that's, the, that's your higher self. You see, that's the higher self to the free will awareness unit. Or I could make up other things. I could say, well, it's busy uh, in the chat room still, you know, communicating with other IUOCs about the, 
the experience that it's getting and how it's growing up and asking others for tips and hints about how they're growing up and it's doing that. But none of those things are logically necessary for the model to move forward, you see. You can make those excursions to describe what the IUC does all day, but they're things you're making up just because they could be true, but they're not logically necessary. There's nothing logically necessary for it to do other than to support the free will awareness unit. Now, the one logical necessary thing for an IUC to do is to become the accumulator of all the experiences. You see, that's its job. It's the accumulator. So the free will awareness unit, you know, gets done, its avatar dies, it goes, logs onto, a, you know, it gets another free will awareness unit. It's just a partition of itself. Then it logs onto another avatar and it dies and it logs onto another and it dies and so on. So you have to accumulate all that information, all the lessons learned, all the things that you did right and did wrong. You have to keep track of all of that. Well, that's what the IUOC does. It's the accumulator of the experience. The free will awareness unit is the haver of the experience. It what has the experience. The IUOC accumulates it and it's the IUOC that then negotiates for the next lifetime. Okay, you know, here's the things I need to learn. Here's where my failures have been. So I need something to help me deal with those. All right, that's a good, that's a good choice. I'll go do that. Now I make a little free will awareness unit and I'll log on to that avatar. But it's the IUOC that does that negotiating for what to log on to next and what sort of lessons would it need to learn. So you see each piece has a necessary function of the whole, and I avoid going places just because I could go there or just because that might be interesting. If it's not a logically necessary part of describing how consciousness works, then I just leave it alone. So if you'd like to imagine that what the IUOC does all day at work is that it's your higher self, well, now you'll need to explain, well, what else does it do? Does it just sit around all day waiting for me to ask it a question? Or uh, is it constantly uh, giving me uh, little uh, nudges and things to do? You know, how does that work? And now you have to make up something else, which leads you to make up something else. And you see why that's not a good path to go down is you can, you can just wander down la-la lane making up things that are not logically necessary. Now, it doesn't mean that some of them might not be true. They might be, but they're not necessary parts of a model. And I made my model to be the bare bones, the just what's logically necessary to go from, you know, our awareness, you know, what is consciousness and how are we individuated units of consciousness and how we relate to that of consciousness and why are we here and what are we supposed to be doing and how does that work all the way from that to understanding quantum physics, being able to answer the, the uh, paradoxes in physics with good solid logical answers. They're not paradoxes anymore when you see it from the virtual reality perspective. So that whole model is just made of the logical components, each component represented by a metaphor. So the larger consciousness system itself is a metaphor. IUOCs are metaphors, free will awareness units are metaphors. 
um, you know, experience packets are metaphors. So they're all just things to describe a function that I have seen and experienced in my own research inside of consciousness. So that's the, that's the model. So now you have so, said that the free will awareness unit quickly loses the memory of this experience, but that the individuated unit of consciousness does retain all the quality. Yeah. Does it retain any of the memories of the past lives? Well, the free will awareness unit basically goes away. Think of it in the sense of a partition. Yeah. You know, if you have a computer, you can partition off a part of your computer to do, say, a specific task. And what it does is it partitions off a little bit of memory, a little bit of processing power, and it can go off and do its own tasks while the rest of the computer does other tasks, you see? Well, that's what we mean by, a, you know, with, with this free will awareness unit. It's just a subset of that individuated unit of consciousness, just a part that gets partitioned off. Okay, I'm going to partition off this part, and that part won't have any intellectual capacity yet. It'll come in as a blank slate, except it has the quality that it's earned up to this point for all those experience packets. So it's reduced its entropy up to a certain level that represents its quality of consciousness. And it's going to begin as a free will awareness unit at that quality that it's earned up to this point, but not with any of the memories of any of those past lives. And there's also a logical requirement of why that has to be. It doesn't work any other way. It has to be that way. So all of these functions are deductive logic. Now, the free will awareness unit, once its avatar dies, well, that starts the process of taking down that partition. That partition's just taken down, and when the partition's gone, well, it's just the IUOC now. It's the whole IUOC, and that IUOC decides integrate all that new knowledge with everything else. And now what do I want to do next? It negotiates for next, puts another partition down in itself, takes, okay, I'm going to do, take this part of me and I'm going to log on to another avatar. So you see the, the free will awareness unit doesn't persist. It doesn't exist. When it's done its job and there's no longer an avatar, the avatar it's logged on to no longer exists, that partition is taken down and a new partition is put up for the next avatar. So that's the way it works. So all the information remains in the IUOC, Individuated Unit of Consciousness, of all the experience packets or lifetimes experienced, all the lessons learned. Okay, so, you know, you can often get more information out of a group of experiences than you can out of just each individual experience. So the IUOC does that. It looks at trends you can see where it's learning you know oh it was learning real well and then oh it had that setback and all of these things help it then negotiate for its next its next uh, adventure in the virtual reality so the the free will awareness unit doesn't persist it's just a piece of an iuoc that is logged on to a particular avatar when that avatar is done it's done the partition's <laughs> taken down you have an iuoc and when the IUOC is ready to have another log on to another avatar, it creates a new partition, 
at a higher level, let's say, of quality because it learned something that last time, and then it starts with a new quality. So we need to start each one new to represent the new level that it's attained because of the things that it learned in the last time, or a new level that it's attained that's lower because of the things it did that were really terrible choices the last time. Either way, you have a new quality point from which you start. So see, there's no point in retaining that old free will awareness unit because its definition, the point from which it starts is always moving, hopefully up if you're evolving, but could be down if you're de-evolving but it always changes and wherever you happen to be, that's new partition, new free will awareness unit, goes on, logs on to a new avatar. So that's how that works. Now you've mentioned that the LCS can copy and paste average IUOCs. Mm -hmm. Now that, when that's done, that IUOC is then a beginner, is that right? An IUOC is a beginner, but he doesn't start at zero, he starts at about an average IUOC, you see? So when the system does that, let's say the population goes up. So now we had seven and a half billion people, now we got seven and three quarters billion people. And probably before long, we'll have eight billion people. Well, each one of those new people is another seat in the simulator, another place for another player in the simulator. So where do all of these IUOCs come from? Well, the system can just take a typical IUOC and copy it and paste it as many times as it needs and use some statistics and, pro and, and uh, randomness to you know, vary it. You wouldn't want them all to be exactly you know, identical There'd be parameters that would be random draws to accentuate this and de-accentuate that and that sort of thing. But they'd all start at about an average place and then it'd all be bumped around with statistics to make a varied field of different kinds of people with different kinds of, you know, attributes and so on. And then these would be the IU, these new IUOCs would then make a free will awareness unit and log on to that new child that was one more seat than we had before. So how would past lives work in that situation? Would that IUOC have any access to past lives in that case? Well, it would just begin to start its past lives at that point. No, so it wouldn't go back, but so far. It would, it would kind of start with a clean slate there. So the past lives would only go back to yesterday, you know, when it was, when it was created. It wouldn't necessarily go back a long way. Oh, interesting. Yeah. As far as those past lives go, now, if let's say one of those new beings that uh, just got bumped up because of more population, and now they're 20 years old and they'd like to explore their past lives, what would happen? Would they just say, whoops, blank, nothing, there's nothing back there? Probably not, because then that would set them up as different. So I suspect that the system would provide with them some sort of past life that was kind of typical for them to see. It wouldn't be an actual past life because it didn't have any, but it would suit their need to explore past lives. 
So the system wouldn't, doesn't want to make people that somehow seem different than other people qualitatively. So though it actually wouldn't have any past lives, it would probably appear so because when it got into its you know, state of consciousness where it could go explore past lives, I don't think the system would give it a blank, no data. I think the system would give it something that was typical, you know, something to satisfy its, its need for past lives. Have you observed this? Has this been an observation? That no, that's not an observation. That's more or less just a logical yeah. consequence. The way I, I know how the system works, I know it's not going to leave a set of people different because they're new. It's not yeah. going to do that. It wants this to be a seamless virtual reality where it's impossible to tell what's going on behind the curtain. So it wouldn't do that. And I also know that, that when it comes to past lives, the system will often make something up that is going to be real helpful to the individual because the system really, its goal is to help the individual grow up. So if that individual can get a particular past life that solves some of their problems, oh, that's why, so da, 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 da. now I feel so much better. Well, the system may just give that person that past life just because that would help them grow up. So the past lives aren't necessarily exactly what they seem anyway. It's just another tool the system can use to help people grow up. And would you know whether it was an actual past life of yours or whether it was something the system was giving you, would you know the difference? Probably not. It'd probably be, uh, you wouldn't know the differences. It's just information to you. Exactly why the system gives you the information it gives you, you'll never know. That's why you should always remain skeptical because you never know exactly why you get anything that you get. Maybe you get it just because that's what's there. Maybe you get it because it's a good thing for you to learn. You know, it's, a, it's on your, your path to some, to some learning point, and it was given to you particularly by the system to help you get to that learning point. So the past lives are not as buttoned down necessarily as they, they seem. Other thing about past lives that's not buttoned down is if you're going to go back far enough, okay, let's go back 100,000 years. Well, if you go back 100,000 years, the system probably doesn't have a lot of individual detail anymore. Because, you know, to see, you know, I want to see my great, 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 you know, grandmother. I don't know if that would make 100,000 years with all those greats, but, you know, say enough greats to make 100,000 years. So then you go back there and what the system would give you would be a probable grandmother, you know, about what your grandmother 100,000 years ago would have probably been like. And that's what you'd get because keeping detailed data on each being that was there 100,000 years ago is a waste of bits. There's no real use for that kind of detailed information. So it does have a general statistical understanding of kind of the way it was then and the sort of things that happened then and the sort of people that were around then, but carrying all that detail is not profitable to the system. So I suspect you would just get something that would be very likely, you know, what your great, 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 great grandmother was like, kind of her conditions, her situation, 
things that might have happened to her so that you get a sense for that period of time and how humans were doing at that period of time. So you can't expect the system to need to remember the, you know, the, the scrape on the edge of the clay pot, you know, that she was drinking out of. It's just more detail than is necessary for 100,000 years ago. But no doubt, if the system gave you that data, there'd be a clay pot with a scrape on it and, and you know, dirt on the face and all sorts of detail would be there. But it would just be adding that detail around the facts it has about generally the way it was. Well, you have said that it's an efficient system. So precisely digging back into that information wouldn't be terribly efficient. No, it wouldn't. Well, thank you. That's interesting. So that's all that we have for today. Thank you very much for taking the time to answer them. You're welcome. Thanks.